Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac 1, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills and I'll be your host. Thank you for listening to this, which will be the first of three special episodes dedicated to the Lockheed P-3 Orion, one of which we have on display, an AP-3C Orion A9760. And if you're interested after listening to this conversation to uh, glean more information about its provenance and its history, Go to the Queensland Air Museum website and click on Collections and you can scroll through all of the aircraft here on display and read every detail about the provenance of each one of them, assembled and maintained by the QAM historian, uh, Ron Cuskelly. Have a look for the P3 Orion and you'll be able to read about the history and the provenance of 760 right up until when it was trucked to Caloundra from the Sunshine Coast Airport, where it had landed after its final flight from Edinburgh, South Australia, and been dismantled and brought across and then reassembled for display. We'll talk about that process in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, I was fortunate enough to interview a gentleman who kept a photographic and uh, diary record of that some nine to 12 month process whereby the Orion was disassembled, transported and reassembled. That's in a couple of weeks time but next week you're going to hear from a couple of the air crew and ground crew who worked on the P3Cs. One of them was a flight engineer, the other was an airframe fitter. Uh, You'll hear my conversation with both of those gentlemen, both of them are volunteers at the QAM. But for today, you're going to hear from a pilot who flew the P-3 Orions, a uh, QAM volunteer and guide by the name of Morris Ritchie. Some of you who are podcast listeners to Mac one will remember Morris earlier in Season 1 talking about his his career flying the Lockheed Neptune and uh, his, his recollections about being transferring across from the Neptune to the Orion are very memorable. Let's uh, listen to my conversation recently in the QAM studio with QAM volunteer and guide and former pilot, Morris Ritchie. Morris, uh, you've spoken to us before on the podcast and we really appreciate you coming back. Uh, Would you tell us where you're from and what is your background in aviation? All right, Gary. Um, I'm originally from a little town outside Ballarat, a place called Dean. Uh, it used to be a one-horse town. And um, I learned to fly at the Ballarat Aero Club uh, on an Air Force scholarship because I was in the Air Training Corps. And then uh, moved from there, in, joined the Air Force later on when I was 20. Uh, flew, after graduation, flew Neptunes and P3 Orions. And then when I separated from the Air Force, I joined uh, Trans-Australia Airlines. Right, TAA. Okay, thank you. And we're focusing in today on the P3s, the Orions, and uh, we're very proud to have A9760 here at the Queensland Air Museum. And uh, we 
uh, everybody is amazed at the size and scope of this huge aircraft. So your pilot, you flew uh, Orion's between 1978 and 81, I think. That's correct. Okay. After the Neptunes, Gary. After the Neptunes. Now, tell us about the Orion. What was its role? What was it designed to do, and particularly with the RAAF? Right. Well, Gary, it was a modified airliner, which used to be the Lockheed Electra, mm. and they shortened the fuselage, put more powerful engines in it, a bomb bay, and uh, provision for sunner boys. And the Royal Australian Air Force used it for multiple things. It was designed for uh, anti-submarine warfare initially. That was its primary task. Uh, we used it for targeting um, ships for attacks by the F-111s, uh, search and rescue, coastal surveillance, customs uh, observations, some VIP transport for senior officers, and um, that's about it when okay. I was flying up. Okay. And you would have been involved in uh, missions and, and uh, exercises that involved all of those at one time or another, I imagine. Um, let's So four engines, four Allison turboprops, um, Describe a, a typical search and rescue mission. What what would be involved for you guys? How many crew? What sort of hours are you in the air? What sort of things would you do? Well, Gary, uh, typically the crew would be 12 in those days. Uh, we didn't have a surplus of air crew. And uh, we would be tasked for search and rescue either east coast or west coast um, generally, um, some close inshore, some further out to sea. Uh, one that I particularly remember was because we were tossed into a cyclone uh, up uh, Lady Elliot Island for a schooner called the Thisbe. Mm. Uh, we never saw it. Uh, we were overhead time after time. They couldn't see us because of the weather. We couldn't see them. We couldn't get very low because of the, we didn't know how high the masts were, if they dismantled them or whatever. Eventually, uh, even the helicopters that were coming out to search for them, they couldn't continue flying, so mm. it was the worst weather possible. Um, I that that was the most noticeable search and rescue, the most memorable search and rescue I've and had. And you were never able to find the yacht. Uh, well, the yacht eventually ran aground on Lady Elliot Island, okay. so all was saved. So, okay. counting them, I can count sixty-four people I've saved at sea. Yeah, is that right? That's Between fantastic. the Neptunes and the P threes. Wow. Mm. And so, a search and rescue of that kind—it's all visual. Uh, well, there's also homing from uh, radar and uh, radio because the usually if uh, the ship or boat was reasonably equipped, they'd have an emergency locator beacon. So we were tasked out, on that case, we were tasked out of Amberley uh, for the whole two days um, trying to find it, which we found it, as I said, from radar, and mm. uh, but never, never able to get a visual sighting of it nah. at all. And how long would the Orion stay in the air? Well, uh, my longest flight has been 15 hours. Uh, that was a uh, custom surveillance uh, flight out of Townsville. Our relief aircraft broke down, so we were out there for 15 hours until our next relief aircraft came back. Um, we landed with our reserves intact, so okay. there's, there's no So drama. 15 hours is not excessive. It, it could do 15 hours. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. I'm sure it could do more if you really tried hard. I did a... Uh, Pilot continuation sortie of 14 hours one time. Okay. Left Edinburgh. They said go and do some training. So we ended up stopping at every air base along the way from Edinburgh, Avalon, uh, 
um, East Sale. Then we decided we'd go up to Fanilpai in Auckland and uh, did an approach over there without touching down because we didn't have diplomatic air uh, clearance. Then we turned south, went down to the South Island, came back west to Hobart, then up the coast, uh, up the valley rather, to uh, Launceston, and then back to Edinburgh and um, landed Mm. with the reserves intact after 14 hours. Wow. I was the only one who's happy about that. The rest <laughs> of the crew were pretty sick of it by then. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I think also the P3s are unique in the sense that uh, they had you, you had a flight engineer on board. We, we don't do that really anymore, do we? No, no. Uh, with the, the aircraft. The, so describe the role of the flight engineer when you're the captain. How did that work? Well, um, the flight engineer, we had always had two pilots and two flight engineers. So the flight engineers had a good union because they could rotate every hour, <laughs> whereas the pilots had to sit there pretty okay. much all the time. <laughs> and in those days, the toilet, the lavatory, was close to the cockpit. When they modified them, to AP3Cs, they put the toilet right down the back, so I don't think that was a good idea. Anyway. <laughs> it's a long way to walk. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so the flight engineer was our backup. Uh, he, Because he sat in the middle seat and it was a little higher elevation, he actually had a better view if we were looking for visual contacts. And mm-hmm. uh, he was... Uh, the Orion was based on the electros, I've said, and in the day it was a modern... Uh, concept of forward-facing cockpit. So from the three uh, crew members there, all they had to do was look up or forward and all their instruments and panels were in front of them. They didn't have to look over their shoulders to find anything. So it was advanced for for its day in the, what, the Electra 59, 60. Mm. So uh, he looked after the fuel panels, uh, fuel transfer, uh, was the backup for engine failures or the regular shutting down of the number one engine or occasionally number four engine as well. So. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, describe the regular shutting down of the number one engine. Oh, right. Well, we transit out on four engines to an area. Say, say we're doing a uh, an exercise against a submarine or something. We transit out on four engines as fast as we could. And then when we went down low level, we could shut down number one engine because it didn't have a generator on it. And that would save fuel, so we could increase our um, time on task. Mm-hmm. When we got down to a certain weight, which I can't remember now, uh, we could shut down the number four engine as well, again, to save more fuel, except there was a restriction about going below 1,500 feet okay. on two engines. Okay, so it was possible to be have the two inboard engines powering the flight and oh, the yes. other two. Yes. And I think the way we have our... Orion set up on display, number one engine propellers is, is feathered. Feathered, as it would normally be a, Correct. On a loitering mission, yes. Yeah, to show what that looks like. Mm. And uh, so explain to us what feathering a prop is all about. Well, the engine would be shut down, but the propeller would, if it wasn't feathered, it would keep rotating in the F stream, causing drag. Mm. So the propellers are feathered by turning the blades parallel to the airflow, so minimum drag. And they wouldn't rotate, they'd just sit there. Okay. And describe what the P-3 was able to do when it was hunting for submarines. What was the process there of looking for a submerged vessel? Well, that in that case, what we were using mostly are sonar boys. So there are two types. There's uh, passive or active. And the active ones are what you see in the submarine movies where the, you hear a ping a and ping. a replying ping, mm-hmm. whereas the... Um, the others would be just listening to noises. And we they were very effective, especially our barra 
Australian developed sonar bullets, mm. the uh, SSQ801, I think that was. Um, and uh, we could we could as pilots listen in on the channel and hear what was going on, and you could hear ships, submarines, whales, shrimp, even. Wow! Very effective. And each ship uh, and submarine has its own sound signature, mm. so that you could tell uh, if that was such and such a ship, or, or uh, yeah, yeah, you could identify yeah, the, identify the them by the sound. Yes. Yeah. So that usually a submarine wants to stay below the surface. Occasionally they'll come up to snorkel, which means they're running on the diesels with the air coming in at about periscope depth, um, especially. Um, conventional submarines i mean non-nuclear yeah uh so the radar could be effective uh at spotting that and uh, it's a small target i mean a, mm. a periscope and a snorkel is only um two pipes sticking above the water mm. a couple of meters what about the magnetic anomaly detector was that used as much as the sonar boys well the magnetic anomaly detector was the final stages of the attack once you've got to fix the taco the technical co- coordinator um would home the aircraft to the predicted position of the submarine. And then the magnetic anomaly detector would be the final quiet uh, way to get a final fix before you dropped a torpedo or or usually a torpedo. Torpedo. Hmm. So it's measuring the magnetic field of the Earth. Yes. And it's able to detect an aberration if there's a steel hull. That's correct. Or even even other... Or anything. Yes. Even a whale. Yes, I think that'd be a little harder. Okay. <laughs> we, I, was, I did 10 flights on a, a special project. Um, we were looking for an underwater uh, ridge south of uh, Australia, around about 55 degrees south. So NOAA, the American agency, modified one of our P3s with a very sensitive, extra sensitive uh, magnetic anomaly detector, basically double the range of our usual one. So we would go down to a thousand feet, head south across the Great Southern Ocean, looking for the readout of what was coming up. And uh, we did find uh, the ridge. It's called Investigator Ridge. Wow! And um, but the weather down there was just incredibly bad. It was, you know, we'd be on a radar altimeter, and we'd be still moving up, perhaps a hundred feet down, a hundred feet just mm-hmm. following the waves. Mm. So um, yes, a useful thing, but. Um, it's interesting uh, with the new P-8s that uh, the only peop- only operators who use that are the Indians, Indian Navy. Uh, the rest of us, the rest of the operators decided it wasn't a value anymore. So the Sonar Boys are the, the first line of yes, yeah, yes, yes, searching. So explain. So all right, the I think we are roughly familiar with the notion of the ping. Yes, ping. It sends out a sound wave through the water. And the returning echo from a vessel is yes. what you're listening for. That's isn't it? correct. Whereas with the passive sonar boys, you're listening what for engine engine, engine noises. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, and uh, I think I, I saw you showed me a photograph before of uh, your parents' house. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Are we allowed to talk about that? Why not? <laughs> you flew low over your parents' property. Was that right? That's correct. Um, we were tasked uh, to look for a possible missing crop duster near Ballarat. And since it was very close to my parents' property, I decided on the way from there, we, took, we didn't find the crop duster. Ah. Uh, as we're heading towards Melbourne, I decided we'd go via my parents' farm. So we 
500 feet, quite safe. Um, two runs, uh, one to get my mother's attention and my father's <laughs> attention. Uh, and then one more pass and then off we went. And um, so um, my father was working under the header uh, at the first first pass and he just sat up and a sudden went and banged his head. And uh, <laughs> I came back the next time I could see my mother waving her apron and the dogs running around. Uh, and um, so when my father got to the happy hour on Friday night, that night, his, all these local mates said, geez, Don, that's the biggest crop duster I've ever seen. <laughs> so, and it is big, isn't it? I mean, at 500 feet, yeah. uh, it must have been it, quite a sight. Oh, it would have been, yes. We ground. weren't going very fast. We are just s- sliding in across the ridge down to the valley, yes. So was it a – describe it as an aircraft to fly. What was it like? Was it? Oh, how, how would you describe it? It was, it was beautiful. Compared to the Neptune, mm. and Neptune was like a, an old farm truck and the uh, P3 was like a, a brand-new four-cab uh, that could do highway speeds. Um, it was air-conditioned, it was clean, roomy, and I remember mostly being fast. Um, it can actually, its limiting speed was 10 knots, 10 nautical miles per hour, faster than 747-400. Wow. They were effectively 750 kilometres per hour. And when it was as the Electra, it didn't have those same engines, did it? No. So, um, uh, the, the engines on the P3 are about 1,000 horsepower right. in old money, uh, more powerful. And uh, for anybody who visits and looks inside, has a bit of a wander around, it is massive inside. You can get the sense that this was a commercial airliner hull originally. There are specialist stations throughout the uh, technical stations throughout the, the fuselage and right down the back, the... Uh, Galley, yes, and, and rest sleeping area. quarters there, yes, yes. Uh, and an actual toilet is quite a yes, yes, <laughs> quite an advance. <laughs> yes, well, we didn't need to put a lock on the door in those days because there were no female crew, <laughs> so uh, of course, all male crew. So yeah. it was knock on the door and enter if necessary. So we're speaking in two thousand and twenty-two. Are there any P threes still operating in Australia? <laughs> Uh, not in uh, well, actually, yes, there are two still operating in Australia, Gary. Uh, there are two electronic spy planes, to, for want of a better word, operating with ten squadron at Edinburgh, outside of Adelaide. Um, there are still a lot of uh, P3s operating around the world in various countries. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealand still has four. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be the closest to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese, uh, the Taiwanese have them. Okay. So, uh, hmm. and they've been replaced with the P eight in Australia yes, for the RAAF. Yes. Uh, the, is that's the Poseidon? That's correct. Okay. And do you have any? Have you had a chance to uh, get up close and personal with a Poseidon? I have actually. Yes, I was a little disappointed to be honest. Really? Yes, because it doesn't have really the amenities the P three has. Like. Its galley is non-existent, very minuscule anyway. Really? Uh, they don't have bunks like we had. So it's not... And, of course, two pilots, there's no flight engineers to relieve. No. So it, in some ways I thought it was what, wasn't quite as good as what we had. You were in the glory days, yes, I guess. Yes, I think so. Um, Going to the States to do the pickup was uh, great, really good. So describe that. You, you went to the US. Oh, yes. Um, now, there's, there's one thing that sticks out in my mind. We, um, we got the P3s out there. They're P3C 2.5. So the US Navy squadron that was training us at Moffat Field, south of San Francisco, uh, they only got the training manuals 
a week before we our first crews arrived. Okay. So they were on a steeper learning curve than we were because they the US Navy didn't have that particular submodel yet. Right. Um, but uh, they, they were excellent training people. And uh, I remember one time with um, a US Navy lieutenant commander. He uh, came from the deep south, Alabama, Arkansas, somewhere. And um, the uh, US Navy... Uh, air traffic controllers are all uh, enlisted men, uh, NCOs. Right. And they would fire off these complicated clearances to us, really fast, you know, static. Uh, With a broad accent. Yeah, well, you know, we could understand the accent well enough, but okay. it was just the fast, so fast that it was hard to comprehend uh, yeah. easily. So one day I was flying with uh, Lieutenant Commander Brunson and he said, uh, hey, Tower, um, he, um, you all know who this is, don't you? Yes, sir, Commander, we sure do. He said, well, he said, uh, you know, I'm training these RCs, don't you know? And they said, yes, sir, Commander, we sure do. And he said, well, I've discovered these RCs can only listen about as fast as I can talk. <laughs> so we'd appreciate those clearances going a little bit slower in future. And they did. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. then uh, one of my other training, uh, a lift, uh, no, he's a lieutenant, a U.S. Navy lieutenant. We're on a shakedown flight, which basically went from San Francisco to Seattle, halfway to Chicago and down towards the south. And we got talking about the Grand Canyon. And he said, um, uh, have you seen the Grand Canyon? I said, well, I've seen pictures of it. And he said, no, but I mean, really seen it? I said, well, no. So he said, okay, well, called up Eric ATC and said, oh, we're going OC, OCTA outside of control zone area. We dropped down into the canyon itself at its widest point. Wow. And, of course, I wasn't carrying a camera at the time, but we're below the level of the canyon where it's about five miles across wow. and uh, for a few minutes, and then we came up and then went back to uh, Moffat Field. Uh, amazing. You got to have some fun, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then after 1981, what, what, was, what happened then for you? Oh, 81, uh, I left the Air Force. Okay. I was in, um, I'd been posted to um, 292 Training Squadron. I was in charge of the brief debrief area uh, where we put the com- uh, information on the computer tapes. We used tape reel-to-reel mm. computers in those wow. days. Anyway... Um, I was lucky enough to join Trans Australia Airlines after that, and uh, from there um, went on to other flying uh, in the Solomon Air- uh, Solomon Islands, flying for Solomon Airlines. Uh, then I went up to Taiwan to fly for Eva Air, their uh, private airline up there, flying seven four sevens, MD elevens, and triple sevens. Retired on them. Okay, yeah. as captain. As captain. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's. Uh, a toe in the water, Morris. Thank you very much for talking because there's so much there I would like to talk about. It's particularly your um, host Air Force flying career too and uh, the, the experiences you had there. And we'll come back to do that. Uh, but in the meantime, it's been great because we wanted to talk about the P3 and uh, introduce the Orion to our listeners and you've done that very well for us. So thank you very much. Hey, you're more than welcome, Gary. So that's our episode. Thanks for listening to the first of our three episodes dedicated to the Lockheed P3 Orion, the P3C. Next week you'll hear slightly different perspectives on the P3 from a flight engineer and a member of ground crew. And then following that you'll hear about the epic 
deconstruction, transport and reconstruction phase, which has brought the display to where it is today. That's next week. Please join us then. It's been great to have your company in this episode. Don't forget, we're open from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. every day, except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. And we're at 7 Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, right across the road from the Caloundra Airport. Come in and see us soon. We'd love to meet you. Bye for now. Thank you.